You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. All right. Um, welcome, everyone. Thank you for coming. Um, my name is David Schlossberg. I am the director, director of the Sydney Environment Institute. Uh, and I'd like to welcome you here for what is uh, the Sydney Environment Institute's last public event uh, of the year. So there'll be a sigh of relief and some drinking later. Um, I do want to give uh, a number of thanks before we start to the entire SEI crew for the year, to Naomi Lyons, to Liberty Lawson, to uh, Eloise Fetterplace, to Charlotte Owens, uh, and of course to our Deputy Director Michelle St. Anne, who has pulled all of this uh, together, this project on violence, um, violence in plain sight that you'll hear about tonight. Uh, there's going to be a discussion, but we're um, after the discussion, I just want to let you know it's a little different tonight. After the discussion, there will be uh, a musical interpretation uh, of the evening's discussion uh, by the Living Room Theatre's Long Neck Ensemble. So I invite you to stick around. The drinks will be flowing. Yeah. The drinks will be flowing after that as well, um, before, after, and during. So to start us off, um, before, after, during, and we'll have people walking around with the alcohol as the whole thing is going on as well. It is our last event of the year. <laughs> to kick us off and to welcome us to country, I want to invite Yvonne Weldon to give us a welcome. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, sisters and brothers. As was said, my name is Yvonne Weldon. I am a Radjuri woman from Cowra here in New South Wales. I'm from the waters of the Clare, also known as the Lachlan, and of the Murrumbidgee Rivers. I am the elected chairperson of the Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council, who are the cultural authority under the Aboriginal Land Rights Act for the land we're meeting on. I would like to pay my respects to all elders past and present, and to all First Nations, non-First Nations people here this evening. We're meeting here on the lands of the Eora Nation. The boundaries of the traditional owners are not defined by the hand or by the pen, but through the natural landscapes of the earth. The Eora Nation's country covers the Hawkes River in the north, the Nepean in the west, and the Georges River in the south. My people have practiced our traditions for thousands of years and endless generations. One tradition has shared in various forms across Australia is a welcome to country. It is more than just words, it is a spiritual process by honouring the ancestors' footsteps we are all walking in. As you travel across this beautiful continent of ours, understand you're entering the lands of a nation, a tribe and a clan that has existed here for over 60,000 years. The First Nations of this country are the oldest living culture of the world. Our practices and our traditions have sustained us and they are embedded into the core of this nation. On behalf of the Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council, the Elders and the members, I welcome everyone to the land of the Gadigal. I acknowledge the Gadigal people whose spirits and ancestors will always remain with this land, our Mother Earth. The First Nations of this land are the most diverse, resilient, unique and sustainable people on the planet. And to give recognition of our survival and also the challenges being faced by people, could you all please pause for a moment to remember the many that have gone before us, the ones that walk beside us, 
and others soon to be following in our footsteps. Violence should not be a part of our nature, yet for so many it has become a way of life. The behaviours aren't always known until after the impact. But this doesn't mean that we can't support and create a change and be that change. A change in a cycle, a change for our children, for the women, for the men, for our families, for our animals, our waters and our land. With our voices and our courage, we can bring a healing to all of us from one generation to the next. Don't live regretting what we should have done, but create the legacy of what must be done. As you connect, learn and share today, tomorrow and beyond, continue to make a difference, changing the acceptance of violence in all forms, bringing my people, your people and our people together, not just through the heartache, but also through our healing. So let's make real changes and not just symbolic ones. And if we are to move forward, we need to do so in partnerships equally. Then and only then, we together can bring about a positive change now and into the future. To make that future possible, let us all draw upon my people's spirits as we continue on our journey. May my people's spirits walk with you and guide you as we strive forward for us all. Again, on behalf of the Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council, I welcome you to Gadigal Land. This always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Thank you and have a wonderful evening. One, two. Thank you, Yvonne. Uh, my name's Brian Joyce. I'm the chair for this evening. I'd like to, well, I'll, you can come up as I call you. How about that? Um, I'd like to just remind you some of the, the ideas while we're here before I introduce the people that are coming up. Violence hidden in plain sight. Humans seem to agree on few ethical principles, but one that seems to be near universal is that unless it serves the ultimate purpose of peace, violence ought to be condemned. And yet, we're surrounded by it. Environmental violence, uh, systematic violence, routine violence within families, domestic situations. The violence that's perpetrated by uh, states through war. And it's these violent realities, they remain invisible to many of us. Even as they are in some way embedded in all of our worlds and touch all of our lives. What are the effects of this persistent invisibility on both those who are the direct victims of violence and those who live as if it's not happening? During this event, we will reflect on why certain types of violence remain hidden in plain sight, imperceptible, invisible and ignored. But not today. <laughs> And with that, I would like to introduce the speakers, if they can come up to the stage as I introduce them. Carrie Norgard, Professor of Sociology and Environmental Studies at the University of Oregon. Take a seat. Megan McKenzie, Professor of Gender and War in the Department of Government and International Relations here. The 
Dinesh Wadawan, Senior Lecturer in Human Rights, Socio-Legal Studies at the University of Sydney with a background in social and political theory. <laughs> Danielle Danny Selamaja, Selamar, uh, prof Professorial Lead of the Multi-Species Justice Collective. <laughs> and David Schlossberg, Professor of Environmental Politics and Director of the Sydney Environment Institute. And my name is Brian Joyce. I'm here to try and wrangle some sense. What you're about to hear is a really diverse range of interests and um, knowledge. I'm from the University of Newcastle. I teach performance. I'm also functioning as the dramaturg on The Fowl of the Air, which is the living room theatre production. A dramaturg is someone who has lots of cups of tea with the director. Um, I've, I've known Michelle a long time and she's asked me to do this because I seem to have a stream or a constant thread of working with violence in much of my performance. I've worked with it in terms of domestic situations, personal violence, institutionalised violence, working with uh, Naramah Aboriginal Theatre Company in Newcastle and currently working on a production with Carolyn Mackay there on true crime and the ethics of engaging with true crime from both a creative perspective but also a research perspective. So with that I would like to introduce, uh, well we have already know what the plan is for this evening, um, I would like to introduce Carrie who is going to talk first. Um, if you have questions there will be a Q&A, save your questions unless there is something you really are confused with and don't understand, hand up and just ask, okay? Carrie, would you like to start? Oh, you can sit. Uh, look, it's just you've got the comfortable chairs. I'm sitting here for longer, and so I was standing for you know they've got the comfortable chairs. Is this, this is a, I just want to stand because I think I, I think we we are different how we are, <laughs> um, and. Um, it's difficult for me to address people sitting. Um, I, first, I just, I really um, was very moved by the words of Yvonne in welcoming us to country and thinking about what is the responsibility that we have for those of us who are not Aboriginal people in this place vis-a-vis -vis violence and vis-a-vis um, -vis its ongoing uh, invisibility and creating that visibility, creating visibility there and also um, for, for this panel, it's really wonderful being here this week with the Sydney Environmental Institute and for Michelle for her courage, um, which is something that Yvonne mentioned as well, and um, the courage that comes in putting your mind to violence and also for us to be uh, gentle with each other um, and loving. And I'm recognizing that talking about violence as we stand up against it is actually a really important thing to do and it's important for us to do that together. So I wanted to say, um, as some of you were here the other night, as a sociologist, I think about uh, violence in a particular way. And um, I also do work on emotions. So I think about the role of emotions in violence, which of course, there's a lot of emotions connected to violence. And I think about violence in plain sight as um, incredibly important, actually. And the role that it plays and the role that the emotions around it play in holding all of our society together. 
So what are the relationships between violence that's in plain sight, between that and power, a privilege, and democracy, if we still have it or ever did? Um, and for any of these, for those that are directly being targeted by violence when it happens, or for those of us that find ourselves in a bystander position in that moment, um, what are the roles of, especially the emotions of shame and the emotions of fear? And they're different, I think, if we're experiencing or watching, um, but it's, they are key emotions that are being mobilized um, in keeping power structures together, and violence is a part of that. So related to, especially what we think about as bystander denial, and um, the lack of acknowledgement of violence when it happens, when it's, when it's ignored, when there is that bystander denial, becomes another part of power happening. We can recognize power sort of in a moment of violence, but there's another piece of power that happens when it's in plain sight and not addressed. And again, thinking about the role of shame and fear in all of that. And all of us in this room have some measure of privilege and all of us have experienced and been complicit with some form of bystander denial almost daily, if not hourly, right? So it's, it's kind of just part of the society we live in. So what does that mean? What does that mean for democracy? What does that mean for us as humans? What is that, how, how does, what's happening in those moments? Um, and so there's actually, for those who are being directly targeted by that violence, there's another layer of trauma that happens when it's ignored. Because it's a way of saying, this is acceptable. This is, this is just how it is. And there's sort of, especially I think about shame in that. And shame also for when we don't stand up. So I first became aware of this um, idea through the work or the importance of that sort of secondary level of trauma when it's not acknowledged from the work of um, a, a indigenous psychologist, Maria Yellowhorse Braveheart, who talked about the trauma that indigenous people face when the destruction of other beings that they are close to, um, who are not seen, that the grief of that is not acknowledged socially. So the grief of the destruction of Buffalo in the United States or other things, it's a very, very significant grief that's not being acknowledged. So she, I, I owe her a debt there in terms of that. Um, but again, the lack of acknowledgement is where there's power operating and all of the people who are sort of bystanders in that, um, in that moment. Um, and that trauma becomes a way that that power structure is being, I feel like I'm being super theoretical, sorry, those are like thoughts I put together, um, is being internalized in that moment. So the state is complicit in it through sort of acts of violence, through organizing things, but all of us as society are complicit when we don't, um, when we don't step in. And thinking about um, really the way that, what we even know to be, what it is to be, this is violence is very, um, very gendered and, and racialized too. So this became, you know, we are living in a time now when there's two things happening at once. Yes, there's so much violence in plain sight that we become normalized to it, especially with all the exposure with the internet and all these things. But there's also a real politics of the visibility of this happening. And for me, um, this has become, and for those of you, obviously what happens in the United States affects everyone, but from the moment that, even before Trump is elected, that he's um, bragging about sexually abusing women in public and that this is considered acceptable and he then goes on to be elected and all of the other things, for me, it is just so viscerally, I become so viscerally aware 
of um, sexual violence and the role that sexual violence plays in my life, in the life of every woman and man I know, and the life of um, and what's happening politically, and sort of the importance of of not of having that um, be not normalized, but that this is just part and parcel of what we consider, you know, it's just 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 normal, and that and that um, you know sort of what's happening in that moment. So, um, so I did want to say that, yeah, that thinking about the violence that's gone into the making of this place, the way that the, um, the violence that's been directed at um, indigenous people has been sexualized, has been gendered and racialized, and sort of how that just is normalized. But we are living in a time when there's more and more of calling that out. So um, there's more and more um, through the Me Too movement, through thinking about the voices of young people talking about climate change. So there, there's at, we're kind of at this politics of um, visibility and invisibility. And um, I think that it is a time, I think it matters um, that we acknowledge one another, acknowledge um, the violence. If you're with someone that's uh, being targeted a particular way, it matters that how we react and how we stand up. Because in that moment, there's so much happening about larger power. Um, and it does take courage and it does take, um, uh, community and support, and I, my hat is off to you, Michelle, for the really courageous work that you do and the keen mind and heart and the way that you bring your mind and your heart together. It is not done in universities enough. It is, we are not supported for doing it. You can be targeted for doing it, and I'm really proud to, um, to be part of what you're doing. Thank you. So before this, we've set up a number of free-form questions that we're going to explore for the next 40 minutes or so. At the end of it, we'll be open to Q&A, uh, question and answer from the audience. Huh? And the opening question is the one that I get asked all the time. Why? Why violence? Why are you interested in violence? Why do you explore it? And how is that manifest in your work, your research, or your practice? And that's to all of you. Why? It's to everyone. How did you come to this? Thanks. I just want to start by saying thank you to Michelle and thank you to SEI. And also, what a pleasure it is to be on this panel with such an amazing group of people. Thank you so much. And thank you for being here at the end of a semester when this may not be the topic you want to hear about. So thank you for being here. Um, just wanted to acknowledge that. And thank you to um, Yvonne for the wonderful welcome. Um, I guess in some ways I'm the one that it seems pretty obvious why I study violence. I'm, in some ways I'm in the field of international relations. I study war and so that is uh, inherently we think of as the study of violence. Um, but actually my personal motivations I guess come from my belief that actually uh, violence never serves the ultimate purpose of peace, that there aren't um, this idea that there are some forms of violence that can achieve peace is kind of one of the foundational myths of um, a capitalist society. And it leads to lots of problems that we could tie through all of our um, work, I think. And I really love that Yvonne kind of called that out for us to mm. say that actually we should oppose violence in all its forms. 
but in international relations, my discipline, when you think that some violence is okay, then um, you get a lot of power from studying the authorized use of violence. And there's a certain kind of violence that's seen as legitimate, a certain kind of study of violence that's seen as legitimate. Um, and so I'm really interested in that, but I became interested in the study of war and in particular, I wanted to, I was always curious when I read about war and I was studying war as a student, why there were no people in these uh, accounts of war and why we would talk about violence and talk about the expression of violence, the use of violence, guns and bombs, but never what violence felt like or what it were the impacts, what happens to people in those uh, moments. And so it seems um, strange, but also our disciplines tell us that asking those kinds of questions like, what does war feel like, are silly questions. They're inexpert questions. Um, but now I'm, uh, you know, I'm further in my career and I've asked a lot of silly questions along the way and I'm kind of leaning into these silly questions as I um, get further in my career. And so I guess that's, those are the questions I'm interested in, the implications of violence. Um, and pushing back against the idea that there is violence for good. Um, so in, in doing that, I end up, I hope, asking different kinds of questions about war in terms of what are the broader impacts, uh, what's happening in and amongst war that we don't pay attention to, uh, in addition to guns and bombs, what's it like to be a service member? What's it like to come home from war? What's it like to have somebody you love be overseas? So all of these sort of broader um, impacts. I have notes that actually now make no sense as I'm talking, so I don't know if I've actually said anything, but I guess so some of the things I study in particular are military suicide. I'm really interested in service members and um, the gendered politics of military culture, and I've done work in Sierra Leone and, and in um, Western military bases and find actually a lot of commonalities that we might not expect. So. I'm interested in violence because I'd like to see less of it, I guess is the main. Hmm. I mean, I suppose answering the question, why, why am I interested in violence? I can't answer it without talking about my young self as a teenager. My young self as a teenager. Um, I spent my teenage years reading all sorts of horrible things, horrible histories, if you like. Um, histories of torture and violence. And I think the thing that was driving me was this, I think quite naive, I think it's naive, but it still guides my research, which shows I just haven't grown up. <laughs> that we could arrange institutions and practices to enable pleasure and flourishing, but we still maintain so many institutions that are about the infliction of violence. And I find this, it's naive to even ask this question, why, why have we chosen to arrange the world in the way we have when we could arrange it in a completely different way? And that, that still guides my research. It's, it's a kind of naive, like, simple question, right? And then it goes back to my teenage self, right? Um, I think, obviously, I've, I've spent a lot of my career looking at violence and how it works and trying to answer this question in different ways. Um, it's taken me to some different sites, and we might touch on it tonight, but um, probably my two main research interests are around the rights of people with disability and questions about how do we relate to animals, human relations with animals. 
and through that violence is through both of those. How I got to those is sort of also biographical. Um, when I was a undergrad, I did a lot of work uh, as a support worker for people with disability. And I was quite struck by the, the fact that people with disability routinely experience all sorts of violence that nobody sees, no one seems to care about. In fact, many people with disability, their whole life is adjusting to the continual experience of violence, exclusion, discrimination. When it came to thinking about animals, I think I was just struck by the everyday spectacles of violence that are part of our societies. And again, that naive question that informed me as a teenager, which was, if we could arrange institutions to prevent this violence, why don't we? I'll leave it there for a moment. Mm. Thank you. Danny? Uh, so Dinesh did the biographical to the teenage. Maybe I'll go to the even oh, littler. The child. <laughs> the child. And really inspired by um, Caro referred to Michelle's courage. And I think part of that courage is questioning the line between the professional and the personal and recognising, as Kari said, that we come to this with our affects, not just with our disconnected brains. Um, so, you know, my parents were both Holocaust survivors, so there was no question for me from the very beginning, pre-verbally, that the world is infused with violence. So for me, it's not so much why study violence. There's nothing other to study than violence. Um, but really from the position of um, a survivor and, and what it means to witness and, and to connect to what Kari said, um, what does it mean to be a responsible bystander? And, and I was thinking as you were speaking about uh, something that the philosopher, the Belgian philosopher, Isabel Stengers, writes about the way in which we have forced nature into passivity while we inflict violence. And then she writes, but at this moment, we can no longer imagine a time where Gaia, as she refers to Gaia, will give us the liberty of continuing to make her passive. And so I think that the only responsible way for me to be a scholar is to be an ally against the passivity or the enforced passivity of those. It's not that, that those who are the victims of violence, whether it's the earth, animals, marginalised human beings, people at war. It's not that they're passive, it's that we render them passive because we blind and deafen ourselves to, to registering. So, uh, so I see it as a, um, a, a responsibility of someone in a position of privilege as I am as an academic to be an ally against that enforced passivity. So to illuminate the violence that we don't see. And, we, and it's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's sexual violence. It's violence against the earth. It's violence against violence on our plates. You know, today, Donald Trump is pardoning bread and butter, the two turkeys. Part of the turkey mm. industry's way of advertising that we're going to have a mass slaughter of these sentient beings today. So it's everywhere 
And I, and I think that to be an ally against the enforced passivity or an ally to, to call into question the liberty that we assume to enforce passivity is what I'm called to do. Mm. David. Yeah, well. You know, <laughs> this is going to be tough. So, um, I guess I come at this idea of violence in a different in, in a different way. And one of the things for me is that these questions of violence and sight are totally interrelated. So I guess academically, the impetus for thinking about violence in plain sight to me is all this work I've been doing on environmental justice and environmental injustice for the last 25, 30 years. And there you have communities who are the victims of this kind of idea that we can do some violence for good, right? We do violence against the earth, we do violence against communities, but hey, you've got a good job, right? You have an income and we get stuff, right? We get the stuff that we need and yet communities are suffering from a variety of toxins or lead poisoning or whatever and again, that's there in plain sight. And the thing about environmental justice communities and the strength of environmental justice communities, they've, they've demanded from the beginning not just to be heard, and the heard part is really important, to have a seat at the table to participate in decisions about their communities, but they insist on being seen as well. This idea of sight, right? The, the photographs of kids playing on playgrounds with stuff spewing in the background or um, of rivers on fire in Nigeria because of oil refining. And that, that, that kind of insistence on seeing what the reality of the environmental justice is, is key. So then the, 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 the issue for me and the work for me is, how do, you, how do you think about that? So I'm, in my spare time, I'm kind of a political theorist, right? And, and democratic theorists are not really good about seeing Right? Democratic democracy is about listening and this idea about even if you go into ideas of receptivity and recognition and respect, it's about hearing. It's about listening. Receptivity is about hearing. And I think this idea of sight is really missing from democratic theory. Right? We shouldn't just be talking about listening. We should be talking about seeing and making visible. And the other part of it then is if you start thinking about that and you start looking at environmental justice communities and at animals and, and industrialized uh, torture and death of animals, you, you start to recognize that there is an institutionalization of blindness, right? Something I've written about is immersive ignorance, right? We are fully immersed in a world that we don't see and that is institutionalized, it's taught, it's politicized, that, that lack of seeing. We are taught not to see. And there's some incredible scholarship on this. We mentioned um, Tim Patrat's book before in the discussion, and Tim Patrat wrote this incredible book called Every 12 Seconds, which is the speed at which an abattoir was running, uh, and the way that even the architecture of an abattoir is built, it's to hide the death, even from the workers who are working a little bit down the line. And I, I try and illustrate this 
to, to students in a number of ways. And one, one of my absolute favorite books about this is actually not a theorist. It's a piece of fiction by China Mieville. It's a book called The City and the City. And it, it's, it's a geographer's dream because the book is about two cities that occupy the exact same space. They share the same neighborhoods. They share the same roads. But the citizens in each are taught not to see the citizens in the other. And that teaching is enforced. And there are police called breach, right? That if, if, you, if you see the other, right, then you are, it's, you know, you're taken away. That is the crime. To see the other is the crime. And of course, people talk about China Miebel's work as just an, sort of a, an illustration of what we get in the US all the time when you step over homeless people in San Francisco as you're walking down the road, right? Americans are trained not to see homeless people, right? They're there all the time, but you step over them. You are taught, right? It is an institutionalized lack of sight of that kind of violence, right? Of seeing vets on the street, homeless, um, without mental health care, right? And we're taught not to see that. And people who go to the US who haven't been taught that are shocked, right? How can you not do anything? How can you not see this, right? So for me, it's, it's understanding the violence, it's understanding the relationship between violence and invisibility and that immersive ignorance, and then it's what are the institutions that enforce this lack of sight, and how do we operate against those? Wow. Carrie, did you want to add after what you were? Sure. Uh, see how, did, how I got interested? Yes. Um, thanks. Um, thank you for that, for each of you. Um, uh, I think, yeah, I mean, I reflect on this a little bit. I think in a conscious way, you know, I grew up with quite a bit of privilege, and I think some of the first forms of violence that was really sort of going back to my teens um, really thought a lot about and really consumed me was... Um, had to do with the arms race. My closest friend's father was very active trying to stop it. And so as a youth, I heard all of these, go to these lectures about how we were two minutes to midnight and, or two seconds or whatever it was, and thinking a lot about violence against the earth and those kinds of things. But at the same time, I later became aware you know, of the ways that I had internalized um, sexual violence that I'd experienced, which I didn't even think of as violence or these kinds of things. Um, internalized experiences of, of living, growing up in the San Francisco Bay Area with poverty around me. Um, and it's interesting, you know, I do work on denial, and a couple years ago I realized that as a young person, and it's still one of my favorite songs, is um, Bob Dylan's Blowing in the Wind, and thinking about, you know, how many roads can someone walk down, how many times can we turn aside without seeing. So I think. I've, I've been interested in this question of, of sight and um, not seeing for a very long time. And I think that that's, that is really my entry point, is really this fascination with um, maybe feeling like I was seeing more or wanting to acknowledge more people around me weren't um, doing so. Um, but I think it's not been about violence per se as much as um, seeing or not seeing the violence and how, how we do that. Given what we're, I'm gonna try and combine two of these areas here. This notion of 
the routine, the everyday sense of violence and this notion of the invisibility, not seeing it. And if you can also address that notion of that, that when violence is contained, uh, when we talk about the invisibility of violence, Butler talks about normative violence is the pre-state to actual violence and that's how domestic violence occurs. We need those systems, you, you actually said that notion, that systems of violence that allow us to function and that invisibility, that routineness of day-to-day -day violence that hides behind the joy of horse racing, whatever the joy is, if you win, um, and, and the notion of the family but what hides behind that. Can you talk about that routine day-to-dayness? And I am interested also in that notion of containment. But I think I'll hit that later with the Charlotte Wood because I think that's about incarceration. That routine day-to-day -day violence that we don't, you say we, it's, we don't see it, it's invisible. Is it made invisible or do we ignore it? Does it have to be invisible for the system to work? That's then we'll get back to going online. Yo. <laughs> I mean, just picking up on, you know, David Close talking about referring to institutional violence. I yeah. I think about, I don't know how, it'll be interesting to hear when we get to hear from you all too, um, to what extent this idea that the state is gendered, you know, that the that states, the state and the capitalist state and the colonial state is created in order to move resources from some communities, from most communities into white male hands. And so that, you know, if you look at um, examples of environmental justice, it's exactly that. It's that communities of color are, um, are considered disposable or women, you know, people of color not being given the rights to vote, these kinds of things, these are reflections. And we, ch we can challenge maybe these individual paces and sort of say, okay, everyone should be equal in this system, but the system that we're living under is constructed on violence and and it is constructed to, um, that violence is to move resources in certain, to certain communities and away from others. And um, I don't ultimately think it's, any of us are really benefiting from it because look at what's going on. But it, nonetheless, we're sort of taught to um, to exist within it, or to that it's what is the only option, right? Um, so yeah, so we learn not to see. We learn, you know, through considered normal mental health. You know, you you considered crazy if you really if you really stand up against this. On the one hand, it's taught to us through those socialization practices, but it's also, of course, if we stand up against it, we become the target of violence, and that's where the fear and shame are used to try to keep us from, to keep us complicit in this system. So, um, you know, but again, I would, uh, I think that probably all of us agree, and you know, that this is, there, <laughs> this is a myth, that this is the only option, of course, for most of human history, people have been not this way. It's a very recent development, um, this kind of modern experiment that we're under, and, um, and it has costs for all of us, and um, the fact that, we're all sitting here talking about violence at this point. Um, Very comfortably sitting here talking about yeah. it. 
That, that notion of what's hidden and that we accept routine, where are those levels of, you use the word pleasure, for those, of it work, for those of us who work in performance, basically it's always about motivation. Why are you doing it? Because Michelle tells the performers to do it. But other than that, they have to find their motivation as well. And it boils down to pleasure and pain, comfort and discomfort. And that notion of routinely accepting how comfortable or uncomfortable are we with those invisible objective violences that support the system. Some responses to that. That, that motivation of pleasure, pain, comfort, discomfort. And we are comfortable here today. Absolutely. So, I mean, if you think about institutional violence, it often serves a flip side purpose, which is to maintain a particular, I would call it a regime of pleasure. It allows people to feel comfortable or pleasurable. Mm. Colonialism, racial slavery, indigenous dispossession, I think are really good examples of the way that a particular regime of violence maintains comfort and pleasure for other people. Right? So this is, to me, there's this kind of logic going on there. Um, I guess I wanted to go back to this question of vision too, right? and to think about, so you mentioned racehorses. Mm. They've sort of been on my mind. Yeah. I mean, I, November's a month where I always feel angry. <laughs> and it's not that, you know, I mean, we're all kind of look at horrible things, but it's one month that I just feel really angry. And it's because... It's spring, Dinesh. Why aren't you happy? <laughs> oh, that's right. It's spring carnival. I guess because, you know, the, the theorists tell us that we don't live in societies where there are spectacles of violence anymore. It's mm. not the Middle Ages anymore. We don't have open spectacles of violence and cruelty. So someone like Michel Foucault, I hate to drop theorist names, but Foucault would say, we don't have these spectacles anymore. We've moved forward and violence, if it does happen, happens behind closed doors. It's not something that we seek pleasure in. Yet I think there are these jarring examples of violence that is spectacular. But I think it also we need to also think about these carefully. Um, and I think that the, the two things I'd say, and this is in response or building on what David said, is that we've got two intersecting rationalities of violence going on. The first is, how do we sequester violence? That is, how do we hide it in particular circumstances as a strategy of power? The second is, how do, how do our knowledge systems conspire to make violence invisible, even if it's happening before our very eyes? And the two things actually work together. And I think we can see this in relation to racehorses. Um, earlier this month, a um, online magazine, I think it's called Horses and People, published pictures of the winner of this year's Melbourne Cup. Um, I think the winner's Vow and Declare. That's the name of the horse. Um, the pictures show the, the, the rear of this horse glinting in the sun and very clear welt marks on the back of the, yeah. the horse. Um, the, the article took the pictures to a veterinary pathologist who confirmed that these welt marks probably arose from the race. And what I find really curious about this whole thing is that the spectacle is there, it's right in front of us. 
But why is it? I mean, we've got a kind of building opposition to horse racing, and part of this is about the use of whips in, in horse racing. But why has it taken so long? Like, what I find really jarring about the whole spectacle is that it, it happens in open sight. Now, there are aspects of that industry that are sequestered. So the ABC report on um, the retirement of racehorses to the abattoir and the, the shocking figures, I think the ABC said that in one abattoir they looked at 300 horses had been killed in that abattoir in 22 days. And those 300 horses had generated $5 million profits for the industry. Don't quote me, but I think that's, those are the numbers. Um, how is that? So that's one side, that's an example of the sequestering of violence where we hide from view the, 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 un, the, the thing we don't want to see, the thing that makes us uncomfortable. But the question for me is, what is it about this industry that we watch animals being whipped around the course and this doesn't draw a high level of, you know, of opposition? Mm. Um, and I think this, this article I saw about, with the welts on the horse, again, just highlight this kind of problem we have around visibility and violence, that it's, it's not only just about the effects of violence hidden from sight or violence hidden from sight, but the way that our knowledge systems conspire to produce almost no violence, even though violence is right in front of our eyes. The, um, that notion of the hidden from sight, we see publicity these days about domestic violence. I know when I first did a play back in the 80s about domestic violence in a family, I actually had to define terms like incest for the audience. They didn't know what the words were. And this was a young audience. And while there is a discussion at these day and age, those things are still you used it behind doors, behind walls. Um, and it's been horse racing for you. The past week has been putting my mother into a, an old people's home. And while it's a fantastic place and it's, it's her choice, I have been plagued all this week with worry of where am I sending her to, knowing what's going on behind the walls of these institutions. And this notion of what goes on behind the walls, that which is hidden from us. Um, and places of detention, and they are prisons, old people's homes, um, care facilities, we don't know. Or organisations such as the military. I know that things go on in them that we question. Danny? Uh, uh, before I talk... Back on. Uh, before I talk about the military and talk to you, which I'll come to in a sec, I just want to build on something that Dinesh said about our knowledge systems. Because, and what you said about um, taking your mother into yeah. to care, um, that I don't think it's quite right to only say that it's not in plain sight or that we don't see. It's about the subject of violence and what we do, the stories that we tell about the subjects of violence or those who are the victims of violence, that then creates a, an interpretation that it's not really violence. Right, so it's not really violence because horses, they don't feel the same as we do. Or it's not really violence because um, old people, well, they have dementia so they don't really notice. 
or people with disability. They don't. So, so we have exculpatory narratives about the identity of the people who are victims of violence that, that allows, that let, literally lets us off the hook. So it's not, I don't think it's that we don't see, it's, that it's the meaning of what we see that I think shifts. Because there is an overriding narrative that places it as acceptable and we all buy into that overriding well, narrative. Well, if we have a general narrative that violence is unacceptable, how do we, how do we, how do we exculpate ourselves from that? How do we stop feeling guilty about that? We feel guilty by saying it's not really violence because it's happening against this, this type of thing. So, for example, um, you know, and sorry, I, I will come to torture, but um, animals in this country who are classified as invasive or feral are poisoned en masse, shot from helicopters. Females have a radio collar put around their neck. They're called the Judas animal so that they can tell the helicopter pilots where the herds are. They go to the herds, the helicopters follow and kill them and then the, the Jenny or the, the female goat goes and finds another herd and brings killing to them. But because they're feral and invasive, they're bad, right? So that's not really violence. So we don't... If it was happening against even other animals, we would say, mm. that's terrible, you can't do that. But we have, we have a... What Dinesh said, we have knowledge systems. We classify beings, the earth, animals, people, such that the same acts when perpetrated against them don't really count. So to get, so to, get to torture. Um, so my, uh, my research in the last few years has been in South Asia, mainly in Nepal and Sri Lanka. And so you would think torture really doesn't... Um, belong in this conversation because we're all against torture and torture happens in the dark. But in fact, um, most of the torture that happens in the world is not the, the spectacular Guantanamo Bay torture against high-value detainees. It's the everyday banal violence that happens in places of detention against people with disability, against um, people in police lockups, in prisons, in, in army detention centres. And, but we don't, that's not really torture, right? Because, so when I call that torture, and it is torture according to the UN definition, people say, no, no, that's the improper use of force or, or in South Asia it's even, well, not, it, it'll be the same here, so I don't want to make it sound as if things are different. But in my research there, what I found is if it's, happens as it normally does against marginalised communities, against people with um, drug addictions, alcohol, uh, people who are poor or from religious or sexual minorities. It's even seen as a form of moral correction. And so we re-narrate the act such that it ceases to fall within the category of the morally unacceptable. And we do that through re-describing the person or re-describing the act. And I don't mean that we do that in some explicit narrative, but we do that in our own interpretive systems. So who shows up for us? I, I, I live in a multi-species community, so I, have, I live with pigs and donkeys and horses and goats, etc. Mm. And I know perfectly well that when most people come, 
and I introduce them to Katie and Jimmy, my pigs, what they see is literally the ham hock. That's what they're going to see. They're going to see the ham hock because that's the filter that we are put through, to go back to your question mm. earlier, that's the filter that we're put through in order to make meaning of the world. Ben? This, this whole idea of defining, defining communities in a certain... I mean, the, the, this is just... This is the norm it, that, that environmental justice communities talk about all the time, right? That, that in the U.S. and elsewhere, black communities are associated with garbage and dirt and pollution, so polluting them is okay, right? They move there, they live there, so that must be okay. That's, so that's fine. Right? And so it's, there is this association of the community with the violence in a way that justifies it. But I, I, wanted, I, I wanted to touch on something else, though, and that's that we're, we're focusing on, on an act, right? We're focusing on a, on a thing, on a time, on an act of violence. And one of the things that... I think we also have to talk about is violence that remains, violence that is long-term, um, violence that um, that's in the body. So, and this is one of the things uh, again about environmental justice communities. And and you think about the kind. It's not just the act of poisoning. It's what does that mean, right? So, one of the biggest issues, and every you know everybody's heard about Flint, Michigan, and uh, and lead poisoning in Flint, and children have higher levels of, um, uh, of lead in their blood in Flint. Flint isn't even the worst. And people don't get this. You know, the only reason that there's, <laughs> the only reason that there is lead in people's water in Flint is because they dumped such toxic water into the pipes that the toxic water ate away at the pipes. And that's why the lead is flowing. So it's not just lead, it's all kinds of other shit that's going into people's mouths, into people's homes, into people's babies. Um, and into their bodies. And lead poisoning, lead poisoning is incredibly violent, right? Lead poisoning decimates individuals and communities. Mm. It creates, uh, it keeps people from, it keeps kids from developing, it creates um, learning disabilities, it creates irritability and violence, it creates violence, right? Lead poisoning creates violence. Violence goes up in communities where there is an excess of lead, right? So there's this connection between this sort of one kind of violence that stays in the body. It's this violence on the community that's acted out by people who live through that. And then there's the, there are other kinds of toxins, right? There, there's, um, there, there are toxins that stay in the body that move through generations, right? There, there's, um, why am I spacing on the name of the, actual, uh, of the actual hormone? Oh, well, it's written down there somewhere. But we have this transfer. It's not just in, in a body. It transfers from one, um, from one body uh, to another, from one generation uh, to another. Well, epigenetics. Yeah, but it's um, endocrine disruptors, right? Passing from one body to another. And so we used to have, like, we used to have pesticides that would affect farm workers, right? Pesticides that you would see right away, the impacts uh, right away. And now we have pesticides that just sit in the bodies of farm workers and get passed on to the next generation. So it's hidden even more, and that violence is passed on. Right, and that it's that sort of that's un, that's unseen. It's known but unseen. It's this, and it's this transmission, and it's all based in the way that 
communities are defined as repositories of waste, and that whole process is institutionalized and made invisible. I'm aware of time. How the hell do you cope with it then? What impact does all this have on you as researchers? How do you process that level of knowledge and I assume discomfort that goes with it? How do you look after yourselves in that? How is it, is it processed in you? What haunts you? Um, okay, well, I can't give you the, the true answer to that, but I'll, I'll try. I mean, Without I just, naming names, is that the deal? No, 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 I mean, you know, just without my therapist present. Oh, right, right. <laughs> um, yeah, I just wanted to add that even when, um, I do think it's, it's important, even when we're having these conversations, not to reproduce a binary between an idea of everyday violence and the spectacle of violence as if, even if we go to the spectacle, so thinking of Abu Ghraib, for example, you can't understand Abu Ghraib and the, the images of torture Abu Ghraib without understanding the everyday forms of torture. And the fact that those photos were circulated for almost a year within internal communities that celebrated them and saw them as just sort of hazing and there was a lot of pleasure in those images um, and they weren't seen as a problem. And actually the, the one service member who blew the whistle you know, the, the torture that he lives with now in terms of he lives under protective custody, he was, he was outed by Donald Rumsfeld. And so I think um, even when we study the spectacle, we can't understand the spectacle with com without coming back to the everyday. And Linda England talked about, still, still talks about her experience and her participation in Abu Ghraib as um, sort of just similar to what they went through in boot camp. Right, so the institution actually teaches these practices. So that's, so you know, in terms of the um, impact, um, yeah, I mean, there's different, so, so Michelle and I have talked about ghosts a lot, and I think it's a great way, or a useful way of me thinking about, um, there's two kinds of ghosts, I think, that I have around research. So there's the, like, literal ghosts, I guess, in terms of, when you, when you do work, or at least from, I, I don't know, for me, doing work in places where there's lots of death and violence means, and being the kind of person I am that's like very porous and I'm not great at closing off my energy, uh, it means you soak up a lot of things that you can't always let go of. And, and I think probably, you know, I see a lot of nodding, so that's good. Not good, but you know what I'm saying. Um, and so I did research that I had no idea what I was getting into, um, and being in a, in a you know, post-war zone in Sierra Leone, the, the war was technically over, but was everywhere. And likewise, when I do work on U.S. military bases, it's peaceful, but war is everywhere on those spaces. And so it hangs out with you, right? And so that, that's one form of ghost. The other form of ghosts are this, this, and they're related, are the stories that you take in as a researcher that you know you can't put anywhere or you don't know where to put and they're, they're just with you and you feel a real commitment to those people or to the, the whomever or have, have shared those stories, the communities, um, and you're just not sure where to put it. And so it, it can, sort of it hangs out and sometimes hangs out in a positive way and sometimes hangs out in a like, oh, this is hard. So I guess, um, I think talking about it and, and I used to think that when, when I would tell stories about literally being haunted, like I actually had someone help me. I, I really did have ghosts with me. 
Um, and I didn't tell people about that for years. Michelle is actually one of the first academics I, I told about that because I was so just like, people will think I am so crazy. Um, but actually, as soon as I, everyone I've told that to are sort of like, oh yeah, tell me more, and, and they understand because actually a lot of us do work for various reasons that's difficult. And, and I actually don't think that because I study war and, and that the work I do is any more difficult than, um, you know, if you're a person who has emotions and you work with, with, with anything that has feeling, that is difficult and, and important work and, and we need to share strategies and support each other in saying it's hard, you should take breaks. Um, and there's always going to be stories that we can sort of, we will just have to carry, I think. Carrie, how do you deal with the Sisyphean aspect of where we work? Thanks. I was just going to say, too, before that, uh, what Danny was speaking about so eloquently, and I really appreciate your words around the continuum of, of the spectacles in the everyday, but what would get uh, what sociologist Stanley Cohen calls interpretive denial, which is, you know, again, exactly that way of and that sort of epistemic balance of categorizing it in a particular community and sort of saying it's okay because of that. Um, and it's definitely, I think about that as a continuum. Um, I mean, I think. For me personally, I don't, I don't know how to answer this question. Michelle and I talked about it a little bit. I don't remember all of what I said. I know, I know there were there have been times when, especially for teaching, it's harder for me to step back and forth between being very visible and sort of trying to hold space for hard things vis-a-vis -vis other people versus being private. I think, I think on a practical level, I. You know, I don't, I don't enjoy watching violent movies or any, I don't, I, I feel like I put my mind in that material that's really hard, it's the most whatever, you know, um, real stuff I can as, as a serious project, but it's not pleasure for me, so I have a very low tolerance for any, you know, so from a day-to-day -day perspective, it's like I'm not gonna watch a movie that has any, any you know, don't do gratuitous violence or anything like that. I don't think that's exactly what <laughs> this question is getting at. Um, I don't, I, I, I think, I feel haunted by uh, what's going on outside, uh, what's going on around us all the time. It's not, it's in my research or it's in, you know, my fear about the future or my awareness of what's happening. Um, but I think I, I try to, um, uh, be in, you know, be aware of a present moment that where those things are not happening, and that that's incredibly important as well. And that there's sort of a resting within. There's so much joy and beauty and magic all around us all the time. Most people are being in loving, profoundly intelligent, generous, um, gracious ways with each other most of the time. And so I think I'm very aware of those spaces as well as the violence that's also around us. And I, I think I just choose to be um, putting my energy into those places. I don't know, I mean, there's words that people have said or things that I'm aware of that are happening, but I don't, I don't, I don't think that's exactly the kind of experience that you would describe. Look, I'm aware of time. I've got 
a number of things here, but I think maybe uh, let's open some questions to the audience. So we'll do hands up, and if we have questions and a person has a microphone going around with you. Sue? Hi, thanks everyone. Fabulous panel. Um, my question is around uh, to, to what extent uh, by us, um, to what extent are we pathologising our um, enabling of violence um, by describing it as something that we don't see, by describing it as something that is sequestered, acknowledging of course that there's so many violences that we don't see, but there's so many violences that we cannot help but see um, through the media channels, through the streams that we get and so on. In a way it is, as Danny's talked about, it's a, in a way that what we're doing is we're re-narrating what we do see to some extent. But also to what extent are we simply making a decision that we're not acknowledging, which is to say this violence is okay because this violence is enabling this life that I have. Mm. This comfortable life that we have. So let me, let me get at that one first, because it gets to something I wanted to say. And I think maybe I, I wasn't, I, I didn't clarify at, up front what motivates me in this space. And it is exposing the institutions that make environmental violence in particular invisible. So the, the latest example of it, and you do this work as well, right? The latest example for me is the Australian government's refusal to, under, to, to acknowledge the scope three emissions, right? So we dig up coal and we sell it and it's burned elsewhere. That coal causes deaths across the world. It causes, it causes deaths where it's burned because of asthma and because of health impacts. It causes deaths on a larger scale because of its contribution to climate change and flooding and storms and all of that. And there is this absolute denial of the responsibility to see that. There is an institutionalization of that refusal to see that violence. And it's that institutionalization that, you know, as someone in environmental politics, that's what I want to expose. It's the, it's the structures that insist that things need to remain invisible. Is exposure going to change it? Me again? Yeah. Look, I think... Because we are an informed group here. How, I mean, that's the whole question in terms of research, yeah, exposure, art, creativity. Exposure, exposure I mean, the, the smoking example. We had, we had you know, decades of refusal to acknowledge the impacts right, of smoking, and you had the institutionalization of denial in that industry as well. And then you, you had the exposure. You had that, that insistence that you can't just institutionalize that kind of denial. And so, and then you did have changes in the law. And look, you know, Australia... But you've is, also had changes in the market where they've just moved to other countries that don't have those laws. Well, and this is where... Well, look, we, we can have this argument, but, I mean, Australia exports more coal than anybody, yeah. and you shut that supply off, and it's like cutting off the biggest drug dealer on the planet. Mm. You know, it's the same sort of thing. So, uh, anyway, uh, that's enough for me. I, I just... Can I just say something yeah. about your question on exposure? Um, yeah, I mean, you're an artist. Well, and, and, and I, an I artist. struggle with that all the time. So, 
um, you know, I think one of the pieces of work that art does is it renders the familiar strange. Mm. So it's it's how do we if you just keep on exposing in the same way, it's not going to make any difference. I mean, look at what people people eat industrialised torture every day and they, you know, they're plenty exposed to that. Um, so, so how do we reframe it visually, auditorily, musically, performatively, um, you know, with our bodies such that people are touched and moved in a different way. I think that's, that's the great question. Mm. It can't just be telling more because we're told plenty. You know, it's everywhere. There's no... That's the whole theme of the panel. So, so I think that's... And that's one of the reasons that we... That I think we as academics need to form different sorts of alliances with people who are working in different media because we're we're multi-sensory beings mm. you know we don't just we don't sense with this we sense with this and this and this and and this well i use that space between here and here it's somewhere there yeah. between the head so, and the guts yeah. Yeah. yes yes um i just want to make a couple of comments and then ask a, a question i guess uh, well, I'm aware of time, so don't run out of your question. No, just ask the question. Cool. Uh, to your microphone. There seems to be a consensus that all violence is bad or violence is unacceptable. Um, I'm not sure I agree with that. don't know about others, but I was wondering what you thought about it. And by the way, I thought it was a very interesting very interesting discussion, but I, I failed to hear the word class, which always disappoints me. Mm. Have it on my note, but just think Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're, 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 but then, well, this, I opened it by saying that, um, answer for that. There are struggles for liberation, there are, there's what we call mythic violence, that which cleanses everything. Thank you, Walter Benjamin. Um, it's funny in this, when I was asked to do this, I did suddenly think, what happened, especially with your work, David, what if all the violence we are talking about is violence perpetrated by humanity? What if we are actually the victims of violence from a sentient planet that is getting rid of a virus. <laughs> Just to throw that to you to think about that. Well, I'll answer the question. Oh, sorry. The <laughs> audience member first, if that's okay. Well, later. Um, I mean, I do think it's a radical, and I, I feel strongly that actually all forms of violence are are unacceptable, and that it, there's a worthwhile. Stand, it's a worthwhile stance to take. And I think we have examples of violent resistance. But if you think about even theorists like Fanon who are saying that actually that violence is an expression of the violence that has been perpetrated. So that it, it, it's, not, um, it's not a tactic that's used consciously in absence of any other means. It's, it's, a, it's sort of a, an after effect, a natural after effect, that violence always begets violence. And so, I think the minute we sort of think there's some violence and we, we sort of 
we fetishize certain kinds and we, we sort of go on and on about certain versions of World War II in particular as if it was the violence that saved the world and, and ignore all evidence that sort of um, erases that. So I think it's, it's okay, I don't know, I feel good about saying all forms of violence are things that we, it, it, or should be sort of condemned. I'd agree, I'm just saying. There was another one. Um, my question is, do you think that the Australian government, when they decided to close all access to the detention, offshore detention centers, was cognizant of the fact of this kind of hidden from sight, not identifying individuals by name or by image, was, was actually happening? Do you think they were aware that they were really using this kind of theory? Or was it just blind luck on their part that they say we don't know what to do and therefore we're just gonna keep things under wraps? Without doubt, because it's not, the, the example that you cite is not the only example. Look at the ag-gag laws, the, the laws to stop activists going in and filming what's going on in industrial farming sites or look at what's happening to try and prevent protests around the climate emergency. So I think that there is no shortage of awareness of the politics of sight, not only on this side of the fence, but on the other side as well, without a doubt. They just look like they're incompetent, but they know what they're doing. Any other questions? Up the back there? Okay, one down here and up the back. Um, I'm a criminal prosecutor, so this has been a very interesting discussion, and thank you very much. It was only really mentioned briefly at the beginning, but this concept of true crime rising in, in, as an interest. Um, there's obviously a lot of crime types, not all of them are violent, but it seems to me a lot of the discussion about true crime is on violent crime types, and for example, many of the most popular podcasts are on violent crime types and most particularly, frankly, sexualised violence against women. Is, it, is there something about making sexualised violence against women into entertainment that in fact puts that violence out of plain sight? I would say, I would say absolutely because it makes it acceptable. I mean, it... it you know, we we um, objectify women just as a, it's it's so pervasive. We it's unbelievably pervasive, and that that sexual violence towards women's bodies is is just everywhere, and it's so normalized. So yeah, there's a bit of discussion about it now and then, but it's you know it's completely acceptable socially. It's very difficult to deal with violence in a performance context incredibly difficult not to second guess what is going to be prurient. And how you portray it is a really difficult challenge. And I mean, we've talked a little bit about it, we're going to talk a lot more about the cups of tea. But that notion of the, the tension between, yes, we have to talk about it, but how do we portray it is a very, very difficult process for any of us making performances. So this is not my academic thing, this is my entertainment thing. And 
it follows on that. And I watched this unbelievable episode of um, Watchmen the other night. And I don't know if people have seen this. Fantastic. It's fantastic. Just, and there is a scene that is of a lynching from the point of view of the black man being lynched. And it's just one of the most incredibly um, making visible scenes that I've ever seen you know, on American television mm. to show that violent act from the point of view of the victim. Mm. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's not, so it's different from the, you know, what you're talking about, about normalizing. This was not normal. This was something completely different that I just never had seen before, and it gets at the transgenerational violence. It's a very potent well. image, yeah. That's an interesting, when Mad Max first came out, uh, the perspective of it was from the perpetrator. When he changed it from Mad Max 2, it became from the victim. But you still have that danger that, oh, you're then putting the audience in the role of seeing the impact on the victim. So sometimes you just have to not even portray the violence to talk about it, and it's a hard thing. We're going to hear a musical interpretation of it later. But those are the questions. Uh, the other one at the back. Thank you very much, everybody. Very stimulating um, presentations. I guess, Carrie, right at the beginning, you talked about Donald Trump and raised the spectre of the relationship between masculinity and violence, but no one else has expounded on that really at all. And I just wonder, I mean, sitting, thinking, sitting here thinking of all the social movements of my life as an activist. Um, and I'm wondering how you uh, strategize the position of a non-violent world when there is such fundamental identities tied up with violence, like masculinity, for example. And I think that, um, that you can choose masculinity or you can choose Christianity or you can choose a number of I think so that the the comment I made earlier about the two rationalities of violence I'm interested in that firstly the sequestering from sight and secondly the knowledge systems that render violence as not violent I think are directly applicable to thinking about violence against women so the if we think about domestic violence, it is both a problem of the sequestering of this violence from sight, um, and secondly, the, the knowledge systems that systematically devalue women to craft them as not having the status to be violated. Right? Mm. So, I mean, but it also tells us about the history of feminist movements, which has been precisely to address these two sites of violence, to open the home as precisely a public space, as a space where violence can happen and where justice should prevail, 
and also to re-render the status of women at the same time to address the knowledge system problem. So to me, that's something interesting about looking at the history of feminist struggle in the way that it, it's engaged with those two sites. So I don't know whether that helps, but I think that, to me, that history is useful for, well, what does it mean for social movements to address violence? I think we're seeing the sim a similar thing happening around people with disability as we speak. So the, there's a, a Royal Commission into violence, neglect, abuse and exploitation of people with disability is currently happening in Australia. To me, it has to deal with these two problems. Firstly, the way that people with disability have been segregated from site so that extreme forms of violence happen against people with disability without any kind of public recognition. And simultaneously, the, the systems of knowledge that render people with disability as somehow inferior and therefore not subjects of violence or, or subjects that can be violated. And so to me, that it's interesting that we see a replication of those two strategies in the social movements. Cara, you want to comment, given that it was you? Can I just say, I wasn't really asking about Yeah. I was asking the current government, for example, and in relation to every single topic you've raised, every group of victims, if you like, including the environment and climate change, is that how do we transform the acceptability of someone like Scott Morrison acting out incredibly violent policy decisions every single day because uh, the feminist movement has failed to transform leadership in this country, and in fact we've gone backwards a, a very rapidly. So Car I, I totally well, agree Megan. with all of the things you said, but it wasn't really what my question was about. It was about the transformation of a society at that point where masculinity dominates so much through leadership that it perpetuates the acceptability of violence as a form of control uh, in every political decision. And that relates to every single issue you've raised, war, uh, animal violence against animals, climate change, all right. environment. Megan, do you want? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think it's not just masculinity that you're pointing to, it's really patriarchy in the sense of that's the, the patriarchal structure that allows for certain types of masculinity. And uh, in my class, this term we read, I think it's Kara Duggar who writes about petromasculinity and how, um, I mean, so just to roll back a, uh, a little bit, um, you know, I think it's what's really interesting is. Um, some of the befuddlement in the response to, to Trump and how is Trump possible? How do we make sense of Trump? And I think most feminist scholars are sort of like, well, Trump is the most obvious manifestation of patriarchy that is possible. He sort of cannot be understood without feminist thought. And um, so I think if we take serious some of the longstanding feminist thought and we think serious how patriarchy operates, it becomes actually easier to understand someone like Trump and, and easier to understand Scott Morrison. So Kara Duggar writes about petromasculinity and how part of the environmental crisis and, and being forced, the environment actually forcing us to, to take um, different, to, to change our behaviors and to stop 
extracting coal. The, the, there is sort of a call that, that this is going to be forced, that it causes anxiety, that her theory is that it causes a sort of reaction in terms of petromasculinity, that capitalist structures are sort of founded on a, this idea of extraction and power through extraction. And so you have this pushback in terms of petromasculinity. And so I think actually if we can if we can sort of identify that then it becomes a way of rearticulating and and showing an in, inability to act on climate um, change as being weak and being kind of pathetic mm. and if we can use that language instead of um, using patriarchal structure language as a as a way of fighting back it, it, I guess um, kind of turning it I think it's helpful um, and also just it, it Yes, there's forms of masculinity, but if you think that, that, that it is patriarchy in the sense that there's lots of, you know, women for Trump, there's lots of existing ways that women and are, are complicit in, in these kinds of, um, so it can't, I don't think it can be, yes, there's certain types of stereotypes and caricatures of masculinity, but I think we would, what I would say is that the way to move beyond that is to do what bell hooks would say, is we have to have these kind of interdisciplinary conversations where patriarchy is understood alongside these other elements. I'll go with our last question. Oh. Ah. Uh, yeah, cheers. Um, so it's sort of a follow-up or, or relate to yours about the value of violence, uh, because all the, the sort of whole talk today has been about human violence, like humans performing violence on others. If we're wanting to say, no, there's no value in violence whatsoever, where does animal, like wild animal on wild animal violence come into it? Because there's this whole big thing of, well, you know, nature as nature has some sort of normative worth. Do we, do you keep that? Violence is always bad when it comes to that. And I think also because it's interesting what we're saying about the spectacle of violence, because the thing that comes to mind is nature documentaries. Mm. Like, that's where... We see violence, you know, I think one of the most commonly times is, you know, Edinburgh documentaries. So yeah, I don't know where all that fits in. So the question is, where does non-human violence fit into the spectrum of, anyone want to take that one on? I've already posited a sentient planet, if anyone wants to go there, but you know. I'll just be brief, because we can talk more about this in the office any time, but um, I mean, this is why my focus is really on the institutions that enable or hide uh, violence, especially violence that um, that involves uh, especially vulnerable others. So, I mean, there's been this whole this whole discussion. You know, Martha Nussbaum has this whole idea about um, you know applying uh, applying justice to nature, making nature more mm. just by basically breaking up fights between lions and lambs, and, yes. that, and it's just. It's the most ridiculous thing, right? Because it, that, that's, not, that's not the kind, it's not injustice, right? That kind of violence is not injustice. An animal eating another is not an injustice, right? What is an injustice is when we starve animals in such a way that they have to treat each other differently, right? Or when, when we build a dam that, that denies an animal oxygen, right? And that, that's a kind of violence, not what happens uh, between them, so that, that there's just that differentiation between the 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 uh, you know ethics are human, right? And we're talking about human ethics, and we're talking about human institutions, and mm. that's the focus. Danny, go. I mean, I would I would come back to you and ask, 
what's the purchase of that question? Because even though you said we've been talking about human violence inflicted either on, on, on other humans or on the more than human, but the purchase of that question or the implication of that question has been humans ought to intervene, which is yet another way of centering the human as the one who has the right to organise the world according to how we think it ought to be. So I, I think it's, it's it, I, 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 I would insist on bracketing that question because the implication is that somehow we know we would rearrange it in a better way, in a more peaceful way, in a less violent way, in a more aesthetically pleasing way. We don't have a great track record. The evidence certainly doesn't show that. No, no, I'm not speaking to you, but I'm speaking to the literature that that question comes out of, which is a, an insidious way of re-centering human domination, another word for violence. All right. Look, when I was given the brief to this, I just looked at it and went, there's no way it's going to fit in that amount of time. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but I will now hand over to Michelle to try and sum up. Oh! There is no way I'm going to sum that up. Good. The only way to sum oh. that up is in a theatrical work, the Fowler Theatre. That's right, which we'll work on. But I thank you all, and I thank everyone up here. Thank the audience for the questions. I will ask Michelle to have a few words, and then we're going to have a musical performance. Don't split. Get a drink. Yeah, well. David, he's always thinking mandatory. This is the last um, public talk from the Sydney Environment Institute where I'm head of programming as part of my deputy director role. Some of you don't know me. I'm actually a theatre artist and I'm trying to find a way of bringing my work into the Institute and that voice into the Institute. So I'm delighted to be working with these extraordinary minds and I get to have tea with them, I get to hang out with them, I get to tell them to stop writing really long titles and though that's an abstract not a title. So <laughs> I have to thank Karin Morgard, Megan McKenzie, Dinesh Wadwell, Danielle Sellemeyer, David Schlossberg, who's my boss, and Brian Joyce, who's joining me on this journey. You're very lucky to have Dinesh Waddle is going to be giving the Ian McCalman lecture um, next year, and I will tell you, if you think you know how your world operates, he will challenge that. He will challenge the way that you live your life in a really beautiful, soft way. So come and be disturbed again on the 6th of February. Um, as we clear the stage, I'm going to introduce you to my ensemble, because a theatre company is going to have a music ensemble. Look at that, you're getting applause. Um, and basically I'm working, yes, I am working with violence because I know violence. I know the way violence sits in my body. I know the way the violence plays out in my family life and I know the way that violence plays out in my professional life. And so through all of this that's bouncing around my 5.1 size body, I'm going to throw this out into the world later uh, next year in 2020 when my theatre company, The Living Room Theatre, turns 20. And in... Oh, I'm that old! 
so tonight I've decided to put my two worlds together and join Sydney Environment Institute's academics and translate and transform and embody their words that you've just heard uh, with my ensemble. And tonight's only a small ensemble. It's three double bass players, Dave Ellis, Mary Louise Bethane, Bethune. Oh, sorry, my French is bad. And uh, Oscar Peterson. We've got Oscar Peterson in the room um, with Mark Borch, who's our honours fellow at the Institute, is also a violinist. And is Josephine here? And Josephine Macken, who's on a uh, bass flute called The Long Necks. So I'm going to get you guys out. Uh, just a little preface before the work. Um, the, Fowl of the, uh, the, uh, the Fowl of the Air, my work is inspired by Charlotte Wood's book, The Natural Way of Things. I have so many problems with that book, even though I love the book. Uh, as an, a middle-aged ethnic woman, um, a first generation, I guess there was something very pretty about the book that disturbed me. I'm not about the pretty, I'm about the ugly, I'm about the dirty and the stinky. Um, and so this is, this is what I'm kind of working with and, and working with these academics, they give me this, this ugliness and this dirtiness. <laughs> not because they don't shower. So if I can ask my ensemble to come up and I'm just gonna preface a little bit of text, um, which is from Charlotte's book. Look at them, they're so quiet, aren't they? Ooh, it's all so dramatic. I usually get them to play in cupboards, so they're not quite used to a stage. So this is the opening of um, The Natural Way of Things, which speaks to me in volumes. She hears her own thick voice deep inside her when she says, I need to know where I am. The man stands there, tall and narrow, hand still on the doorknob. He says, almost in sympathy, oh, sweetie. You need to know what you are.